Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 198 of the Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of the Monaco Grand Prix. I'm Rob Warner. And I am Jim Lau, and it was a big week for motorsport, including not only the Monaco Grand Prix, but also the Indianapolis 500, the 100th running of such. So that is very much exciting. And we have an update from our man on the ground who is back from Monaco and has plenty to share with us about his experience there. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Robin. It is Jamie Price reporting back in the United States after an amazing weekend at the Monaco Grand Prix. Every time I visit Monaco, I continue to be blown away by what an incredible race it is, what an incredible place it is, and how insane it is to have a car race there. It's just so special. I'm so thankful and fortunate that I've been able to cover it three times now. Monaco is kind of a weird one on schedule, as you may or may not know. They do the normal Friday practice sessions on Thursday, which means we all have to arrive a day earlier than normal, which is fine by me because it gives you an extra day to kind of get used to the jet lag and get your bearings and spend a few extra euros on, on beers and just kind of enjoy the atmosphere. So uh, we arrived on Tuesday, which we normally arrive on Wednesday, but arrive on Tuesday in Monaco, did the normal Thursday press conferences on Wednesday and all that random atmospheric photos and, and things getting set up to uh, to shoot the weekend and kind of shooting the drivers coming into the paddock and track walks and just the fun, lively Monaco atmosphere. Things kind of kicked off on Friday it was perfect weather all weekend until Sunday, obviously. It was just absolutely stunning. You could not imagine better temperatures, nicer breezes, um, bluer skies. It's the way Monaco should be every year, and unfortunately it's not, but it was really, really enjoyable. You're out trackside, and just the cars are whizzing by inches away. It really makes your hair stand on end. I've said it before. I'll say it again, and I know we haven't put the, the noise thing to bed, or maybe we have, but I certainly haven't. But Monaco Monaco supersedes the, the sport itself. Monaco supersedes the entertainment or lack thereof sometimes of Formula One. It doesn't matter how dull or boring the Monaco Grand Prix is. It's just one of those races that you can appreciate the drivers and cars for what they're doing and it's just really, really special to see that around the streets of Monaco where they are truly millimeters away from the barriers and you're right there taking pictures of all of it. It's It takes as much commitment from the photographers as it does from the drivers. But it was uh, it was really I loved watching Daniel Ricciardo all weekend. He was just absolutely on fire. I think that this will have to go down as one of his greatest weekends of driving ever. I mean, he was really just unbeatable by either the the weather or the competitors that he was racing against. I don't think anybody really had an answer for the commitment and talent he was throwing down in Monaco, and you could just see every single lap that he was just on fire. And uh, from that was from practice, like practice one, two, three, qualifying. I mean, I know he didn't top the timesheets in all of them, but he was just genuinely quick and had the confidence. You could see it in his eyes. You know, obviously when it came to race day, he was let down by his team. And personally, I don't think I've ever seen a more dejected driver. And and that was my 22nd Grand Prix that I've covered in my career. I don't think I've ever seen a driver like that. And it was sad to see him like that because normally he's such a happy-go-lucky guy. He really always has a smile on his face. That's not just a rumor or something that people have said about him. It is so true. No matter what, he always has a smile on his face. And I can tell you that he will either be broken in confidence in his team or he will come back stronger than ever in Canada and hungrier than ever. And maybe he'll never win a Monaco Grand Prix. You don't. We don't know. We. I mean, he's he's not young, but he's not old either. Uh, but I think he has plenty more chances at it. But if he never does win a Monaco Grand Prix, I think this one will sit very poorly with him for the rest of his life, regardless of whether he wins another one. But even in the rain, the the first laps, uh, you know, when the safety car released him on Sunday and they were allowed to go racing, he was pulling away from the Mercedes. No one had an answer for him. He had the grip, he had the, the confidence, he had the, the skill. 
and he was driving away with it, and unfortunately the team let him down. But it was it was just a fun weekend. It was a great weekend of racing. I very much enjoyed the race. I spent the whole time down at Mirabeau. Mirabeau is is one of those corners that is an action corner. It's there's a lot that happens, but there's also a lot you can do in that area. You can kind of walk around the corner and and head toward the Fairmont hairpin. And, and as you're walking through the Fairmont hairpin, you're you're looking down the track toward Portier and the harbor and the tunnel area. So you really do have a lot of options for photography. It's just a great spot to do it. You're you're watching the cars as they come over the crest at the Casino Square and kind of around the the manhole cover and the bump in the road. I mean, it's just a really it's a spot you can see a lot of action. Kevin Magnuson actually ended up dumping his car into the barrier right next to me, which was kind of entertaining. I looked up and I heard kind of screeching tires. It was still pretty damp at that point. All of a sudden, he uh, went flying into the barrier right in front of me. It wouldn't have been worth really taking pictures of. It wasn't anything dramatic. I got a picture of him reversing the car out of the barrier without the wing, and the marshals jumped over the tire barrier and grabbed his wing and threw it back over the, the catch fence. It was an entertaining spot to watch the race, and I'm very fortunate that I, I was able to be there. And then for the, the finish of the race, I ended up running back toward the podium, and uh, got showered with champagne again with Lewis Hamilton and got some pretty interesting pictures of Daniel Ricciardo looking very dejected on the podium. But most exciting for me was that I work for Force India. So as you can imagine, it turned into a, a wild afternoon of of celebrations and photos with the team and Checo. I stood next to Checo's dad in Russia when Checo had his podium there and his dad and I shared another hug and a laugh and I congratulated him and it's just really special. You could see the joy in his face and how proud he was of his son but the team just did a, a stellar job. Their chief strategist, her name is Bernie, she's, a, she's from Ireland, but she and I had the pleasure of having a few beers out in Shanghai, and she's just so nice, and I really enjoyed getting to know her, and she was also responsible for Checo's podium last year. Just, she's just unbelievable. She's a hero. She is the reason that that team is doing as well as they are. You know, they're underfunded. <clears throat> they have talented drivers, but they just don't have the money to compete with the top teams. And we've now seen twice in the span of half of a season, essentially, that this underfunded team is on the podium with Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari. It's just unbelievable. It's really, really special. So I know that the people behind the scenes don't really necessarily get as much credit as, as some of the other people do in the team that you know, the, the managers and the drivers themselves, but the strategists are the ones that really make the race happen and, and see it unfolding and can take a gamble and say, we have the chance to do something great here. And she did it. She got Checo a second podium and, or a third podium, but I don't know that she was responsible for the one a couple years ago, but I know she's responsible for the, the Russia one, and I know she's responsible for the Monaco one, and it was a fun atmosphere. It was great to see Checo up there, and you know I'm sure he probably never expected to be on the Monaco podium with Force India, but just unbelievable, and Hulkenberg did pretty well, too. I still think that he's owed and do a podium sooner rather than later. He's he's too talented not to, but I think he's just had a little bit of bad luck and, and occasionally some not fantastic decisions and on track, but I think he'll get there eventually. But it was just, it was a fun weekend. I love Monaco. If you ever get the chance to go to Monaco, do it. It can be done fairly inexpensively. It doesn't take thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars the most expensive part of my trip would have been the flight and the accommodations we were staying 30 minutes walk from the track so I walked to the track every day it was great it was just really fun and it only cost 500 500 dollars per person to stay there so it was really just it was fun but hope everyone is doing well. I will next be in Canada next week and then heading straight to the 24 hours of Le Mans where I'll be working for Toyota. So you never know what will happen. Le Mans is going to be a crazy one. I can't wait to see the battle between Audi and Porsche and, and Toyota. 
I genuinely think that it's going to be a great race. They've all had a gentleman's agreement to not run more than two cars, so all those big teams are running two cars, which means you can't have a crazy strategy like they did with Hulkenberg, where you have you know, a car go out and do the rabbit strategy and, and another one do another strategy and another one do another strategy that's maybe a little more conservative. They're going to have to really like figure things out, and if there's any issues... We may very well see a privateer team like Rebellion or somebody on the overall podium. Beyond that, I think the GT class is just going to be unbelievable racing. I can't wait to see what Ford does. I mean, bringing four cars, Ford, four Ford GTs is just going to be wild. Though they sound terrible, they do look good. And uh, I can't wait to see what they do. And, and I'm really pulling for another Corvette win. My friend Jordan Taylor and his brother Ricky are in one of the cars, as well as another friend of mine, Tommy Milner. So I'm hoping for an American, an American podium at Le Mans. That would just be so special for them. But I can't wait. I can't wait for Canada. I can't wait for Le Mans. It's going to be a fun June. And then I've got a couple more races this year. I'm doing Hungary, Italy, the United States, and hopefully the Mexican Grand Prix, as well as lots more sports car racing. Anyway, hope everyone is doing well. And, yeah. Fantastic to hear from Jamie and hear all his points about Monaco. We all appreciated the fact that Checo Perez made it to the podium, but the fact that Jamie experienced that with Checo's father. That's incredible. And I couldn't agree with Jamie more. I'm also incredibly excited about the upcoming 24 Hours of Le Mans. It's going to be a huge, huge race. And it may not be the prototypes that are the most exciting, but the GT cars with Ford getting back in it and Corvette still being incredibly strong. And, of course, Ferrari with their 488 GT car. So all very exciting stuff. But, alas... We are here to talk about Monaco. Yes, and of course, I want to start with qualifying, which was a very exciting session to watch, I have to say, with some of the struggles early on. Interesting to see the McLarens. We were thinking they might look stronger than they ended up actually looking, but uh, qualified well. But Daniel Ricciardo, man, at the sharp end of the grid, that was incredible to see him get out there and uh, with a, what, 113.6, and then it was almost two-tenths ahead of Nico Rosberg. And then Lewis Hamilton, who, of course, had trouble during the session, but was able to come out and come third. But, man, Daniel Ricciardo just owned it in qualifying, and it was really exciting to see on a fair fight to have the Red Bull come out and, and be so successful. Obviously, his uh, his race uh, unraveled in an interesting way, which we'll talk about later. But qualifying-wise, Ricciardo ahead of both Mercedes and then back to Vettel and then on down from there. But the Force India is pretty close by. Toro Rosso is looking pretty good. It's always fun to see how Monaco switches up the, the balance of power a little bit in the Formula 1 grid. And, uh, man, having Daniel Ricciardo specifically in the Red Bull right at the top was pretty exciting. I couldn't agree more, but it wasn't that Red Bull that I wanted to talk about first. The young Max Verstappen and his less-than-stellar, less-than-impressive, less-than-mature qualifying run. I only use those less-thans because he impressed us all so much in Spain that comparatively this was a bit underwhelming. But I think of all races, and considering his history, this one's excusable. But what did you think about Verstappen? Yeah, I mean, to look at it with a long view, he crashed last year in Monaco in the race. He crashed in practice. He crashed in qualifying. And then jumping ahead a little bit, he crashed again in the race. So I don't know. He just maybe doesn't quite have his head around the way he needs to handle the car around the streets of Monaco. Of course, that's understanding that, you know, he's as young as he is and still on his way up in his career. But I think he may have just gotten a little bit ahead of himself in terms of how much he could push the car and how much he felt about his own knowledge of the, the grip and the tires and the surface and just... Monaco being the crazy special thing that it is for Monaco. So I guess I don't, I'm not immediately going to write him off as a failure. I think there's still plenty uh, for him to learn and develop throughout the season. Of course, you know, coming up to Canada should be a, a nice, uh, good track to suit him. The Renault engine seem to be pretty good and powerful these days. And I think he can come back to strong performances. So I don't want to immediately think, oh, he's going to get swatched back out to Toro Rosso and it's going to be crazy. Like, I, I think it's a, a unfortunate sort of down point for his season, but hopefully he can just rebuild from here and continue to have a strong remainder of the season. Yeah, I agree with that. The only potential trouble for Verstappen is if, because he's now part of a quote-unquote big team, and he's had multiple years of Monaco 
to think about, does he let that get into his head? And being a just 18-year-old head, is it harder for him to cope with the stress and move on? Or is it because he's 18, it's actually going to be easier for him and he's already forgotten about it? I don't know. I'm just saying the one potential chink in his army is that his youth makes him hold on to the bad parts longer than he should or that is healthy, and that kind of puts him in a negative spiral. This is not something I'm predicting will happen. I'm not foreshadowing. I'm just saying it's something to keep an eye out for. Yeah, I think the next few races should be key to see how Verstappen's season continues, basically, how he starts to fit in with the team and the engineers and so on. But at the other side of the Red Bull garage, of course, the other big question is how the next race is going to look for Daniel Ricciardo and his relationship with the team. I mean, it really went from bad to worse from Barcelona to here in Monaco, obviously not in qualifying. In qualifying, it was spectacular, and he put it way on pole and just had a spectacular lap. But for the race, the strategy was, you know, that was his big problem with the way things went in Barcelona was, okay, they, you know, they, they had two, a couple different strategies. I got on the one that turned out to be not so good. Did the team know that? Maybe yes or maybe no. But anyway, the win was almost his for the asking in Barcelona. And because of the strategy, he was put behind. And of course, his teammate went on to uh, to win there. In Monaco, it's sort of two things. I mean, one is he was about 10 seconds ahead of Lewis Hamilton earlier in the race. And with Hamilton being held up behind Rosberg and all that, but then just because of the tire strategy, because of the the timing switching to enters and all that, that 10 second lead evaporated. And then of course, there's the fateful pit stop that ended up with him behind Hamilton. So it was not, I mean, everyone likes to look at the pit stop and that is obviously a very dramatic thing when of course, Ricardo pulls into the pits and his tires aren't ready and it's a whole big scramble in the Red Bull garage and Red Bull of all the teams to have been traditionally so good at pit stops and get everything drilled and setting records for how fast they can do pit stops and all that is very uncharacteristic for them. There, of course, are conspiracy theories flying around, which I don't, I don't think you do really put a lot of stock in that, but Ricardo is rightfully upset with his team and one wonders how is that relationship going to shake out? I mean, is Ricardo immediately on the phone to his buddies at Marinello saying, hey guys, let's work out a deal. Let's let's make something happen. Or uh, does he try to just, yeah, make some deal with some other team? Because he seems like he's really got the talent. And now with several decisions in a row, really seem to be going against his success. And that that can't be good for his side of the of the team. So I wonder if at all how that fa- affects Max Verstappen's next few races and if he can hopefully just keep that out of his mind, focus on his own career, his own races, and make everything happen. But I'm a little concerned that uh, the way that relationship is shaping up, that that could kind of spill over and, and affect the team as a whole. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that and tie it back into Verstappen, who very well as the silly season, perhaps the silliest of the silly seasons we've had in a long time, comes in, Verstappen maybe not only becomes the youngest driver that's won a race and part of a big team, but also the youngest lead driver for that team next year. But it's funny, I actually want to go back to qualifying, back to the happier times for Ricardo. He was fastest of all, of course, And as you mentioned, his lap was a 1 minute 13.6 second lap time. An incredible run. That was a solid one and a half seconds faster than last year's pole lap by Lewis Hamilton. One and a half seconds at Monaco. That is huge. And it drives home a couple of points. One, it was epic for Ricardo to do. Shows that he's a massive talent. And two... I keep reiterating this, the cars are getting so much faster and developing on their own. I really, really hope that people have some sense and don't try to falsely make the cars, quote unquote, faster by doing silly things that aren't really in the spirit of Formula One. That's kind of dialing back the technology, dialing back the efficiency just for the sake of lap time when we could potentially, in a couple years time, make impressive lap time with this new, efficient, amazing technology. And the other thing I want to mention about qualifying, to see Lewis Hamilton yet again struggle with powertrain. He had an issue with the car, and they went in, they fixed it, but then he went out, he did a qual, not a qual, like a warm-up lap. He started to be on it, and then he backed off. Then he did it again. Then he did it a third time. And when he finally was doing an actual proper at-speed pushing it qualifying lap, he was up sector one. He was up sector two. Then when he crossed the line, he was two, three-tenths behind. 
that was another bizarre and I'm sure frustrating moment for Lewis Hamilton to deal with. Yeah, and speaking of qualifying and the performance of the cars, I agree with you that Formula One should be looking at continuing to make incremental improvements to the speed of the cars and the reliability and the road relevance and all the different things that we've been talking about. But I think we're on the same page that we don't think the answer is to tear up the rule book and come up with something crazy new and different. I mean, to look at it another way, what we have now is generating exciting racing. It's got some unpredictability to it, you know, with the starts and with obviously tire strategies and adding additional compounds, but just the way the championship unfolds with the different teams and drivers and people moving around and political struggles and stuff that are going on. One thing we don't want to see is, you know, teams running out of money and and not being able to compete because of that. But just for the balance of power to shift over time, as it inevitably does between Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull, McLaren, Honda, STR, who knows? But the other side effect of some of the recent small changes that have happened from year to year in the cars is that they have gotten louder. So now I think I want to bring in our other man in the field from Monaco. I don't know if they ran into each other this time, like has happened in years past, but our boy Craig the Kilt Wilson was on site and has some audio to share with us of the way Formula One cars sound in 2016 in Monaco. This is Craig the Kilt reporting for Fun With Cars at the Monaco Quali. It's now practice three going on just now, and I'm just walking past Raskas. Get up to the paddock. Get up to the paddock area. Get ready for quality. The cars are the cars are definitely noisier. Although they're not that noisy because I'm probably 20 foot away from the track right now. So we're just walking up, up the hill to go down to the paddock area for quality. Getting excited. Thank you for that, Mr. Kilt. That was awesome. I really appreciate you sending that. Craig also sent a short video of GP2 cars buzzing around. And you know what? It reminded me of Formula One cars of the past. I don't know if people are going to like to hear this, but it was almost like, oh, that's old school. You know, it, 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 I didn't have that initial like, oh, I missed that sound. I was like, oh, man, that sounds old. Yeah. Well, hey, as we've talked about over the last few years, old cars sound good. New cars sound fine. And the most important thing, I think, and I think you agree, is that the fact that the lap times are getting faster, that they're using less fuel, that they're innovating in new and exciting ways, and that basically we have races to watch that are exciting. I think matters more than uh, than even the other factors. So nothing against the sound of classic V8, V10s, V12s, any kind of, you know, pick your choice. But the uh, new, new cars also, I'm glad to hear that it sounds good from the spectator areas. And most importantly, you know, we had a, a race who was exciting to watch and, and follow and keeps us interested throughout the season. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Now, There are a few people that might have missed the engine sound when it came to the race because the Monaco Grand Prix started in very wet conditions and the yellow flags waving behind a safety car. It took, I don't remember exactly, was it seven or eight laps before we could go green? And I was curious how you felt about them starting behind the safety car and waiting that long for them to go green. I'll add... I was a little bit disappointed that it took them as long as it did. Yeah, it's a little tough to say in hindsight because I guess if they had done a grid standing start and there was a massive crash, then that would have been a pretty lame way to have potentially a bunch of people's races end. I guess I don't have a massive problem with it. It, There was some debate uh, from drivers and from the people that were there saying, oh, it was actually dry enough. It didn't dry out that much from the time the safety car started until they brought them in. And of course it was wet and people were dealing with that and they were on full wet tires, not intermediates at the start of the race. But, you know, I guess I I don't really have a problem with it because it, it, at the very least, did allow people to uh, to get into it and start battling and, and make things happen. But it also unlocked potentially some interesting tire strategies so that people had fewer laps than originally planned to go pushing at the limit and that was ended up being a big key of course for the victory but also for a lot of the different places on here was with any wet but drying racetrack it's when do you switch to dry tires or when do you switch to intermediates and how is that going to line up with where your pit stop strategy is anyway 
but also trying to account for what if there's another safety car and that'd be a great time to pit and all that. So it adds this interesting strategic element where if we just have a complete washout for the whole race, that's not terribly exciting if it's a bunch of safety car laps and you know a bunch of slow running or whatever. But this, as it happened with the timing, having the pace of the race be what it was at the beginning allowed us to have this drying track and it was very fortuitous timing, certainly for Lewis Hamilton, to switch over to tires and you know allow them to carry on and, uh, and do really well. So overall, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, I don't have a problem with them starting behind the safety car. Just as you said, a standing start versus a rolling start is probably a pretty healthy jump in safety and a mitigation in potential calamity. However, I will say that it felt like seven or eight laps was too long. I wish they'd gotten the ball rolling a little bit sooner. However, we did get a fantastic race once the safety car did pull in. I'm not sure Kimi Raikkonen would agree with me. (laughs) And it opens up another question immediately. Kimi Raikkonen had a minor instant hit the wall, pushed off his front wing. The front wing ended up underneath the front of the car. The car was capable of driving forward, but he was not allowed to go any further because it's against the regulations to have that car be in that condition. I was a little bit disappointed with that, and I was curious how you felt. Do we know that that's why he pulled off? I mean, I know it's the Nouvelle Chicane when he just basically went straight on and, and parked the car there, but I didn't know that that was actually mandated by the, the stewards. I mean, I guess I, I know when there's big pieces of a car that could potentially just become dislodged, become a safety hazard and all that, that that could be an issue. I guess when he pulled into the runoff area after the downhill where the, where he ended up stopping, I thought maybe they would dislodge that front wing from his car and let him go on and fin- you know get a ramp back onto the pits. They could put a new nose on the car or whatever, so... I guess, I don't know if that was an option at all, if there was other things broken on the car that that wasn't. Do you have any insight into exactly what the call was and and why he had to stop? Because I'm not sure if it was his decision or Marshall's or if he was actually black flagged or what. He was not black flagged, but I'm fairly certain that the team told him to stop. They said, pull the car off right away because of breaking the rules of, you know, avoiding a penalty. They asked him to pull off and his day was done. So, No, I don't have proof positive two sources in front of me fact, but I'm fairly certain that it was because the FIA didn't want him to keep going and because Ferrari wanted to avoid penalty. That's why Ferrari told him to pull off. Yeah, and it's a little bit funny. I mean, in the post-race debriefs and stuff, people have asked about Kimi's performance and asked Ferrari and so on, and the response is basically, well, everyone has tracks that they don't like, and for Kimi, that's Monaco. Yeah, he's won here, but meh, it's not really his thing, and go on to the next one. Not the most satisfying of you know technical of answers or whatever, but fair enough. You know we'll, we'll talk about points standings and stuff as we uh, as we progress. But not a stellar race weekend for him, and he's probably just happy to move on. One silver lining for Kimi, although not really, is that he was just one of seven drivers that did not finish the race, including Max Verstappen and another very unfortunate teammate kerfuffle, Sauber's. Felipe Nasser and Marcus Erickson coming together in a, oh boy, I'm trying to think of the politically correct way to state, state this, the less than perfectly harmonious ways. And it was just kind of wrong on all sides. Yeah, that was kind of dumb. I mean, it's in the in the closing stages of the races, uh, of the race. Of course, everybody wants to make their own moves and do as best they possibly can, but it seems like the situation, especially the you know teammate situation at Sauber, is not great, and it's unfortunate that that came to you know push sort of came to shove in the, in the case of the two cars and that ended both of their races. Uh, we've of course after uh, Spain and, and and Mercedes, everyone has talked about okay, yeah, you never crash into your teammate, and rules should be even slightly different. You should even leave more space and make sure it's not just a letter of the law, but make sure you leave space and and so on. But neither one of those guys wanted to give an inch. Um, it seemed a bit aggressive. And I think Marcus Erickson and Felipe Nasser, do they both get penalties for next round? I think uh, I think at least one of them did. It might have actually been both uh, for uh, that they have to carry those on to Canada now uh, as a result of what's going on. Well, they might both receive the penalty of not having a team to race for. Sauber is not in good shape financially. Sauber is struggling. They are also now more and more firmly in the back of the pack. And this is terrible for them. This is terrible PR. This is terrible physical parts damage. This is terrible on all levels for Sauber. This is less reward money to split amongst the team. I mean, they, more than any other team on the grid, really need to avoid this kind of action. 
I think these drivers, regardless of penalties, might not have cars to drive for the rest of the season at this rate. Yeah, it was Marcus Erickson got a penalty, a three-place grid spot penalty for Canada, and then also uh, Danny Kafiat, which Trevor really talked about, uh, but he also was uh, found to be making avoidable contact. So um, both of them will have penalties that carry over, but Felipe Nasser was not found to be guilty of anything. So it was an overly aggressive move from Erickson in that case. But yeah, it sucks because like you say, there's all the all the team is doing the best they can to stay afloat financially and make it to all the races and do as best they can. So all these people that work so hard in you know in the factories and, and on traveling around and doing the whole thing, uh, when all that comes down to these guys have a certain attitude, or in this case, you know, Marcus Erickson having a certain amount of uh, push toward really just trying to make his point and get his nose in there and getting a little optimistic with the move. When that ends up in, uh, you know, shards of carbon all over the racetrack, that's not uh, an excellent way for that to end, and especially not for a team that really can't afford it like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good point that of all the teams that can afford, I mean, of course, Mercedes, it sucks for them. It's a PR black eye and so on, but they're going to be able to afford to continue racing throughout the season, and they're still in very, very good shape for Constructors' Championship and one of their drivers for the Drivers' Championship and so on. But for Sauber, yeah, that this is the kind of thing that doesn't help anyone, doesn't help the sponsors, the actual team budgets, like you say, the parts and spares and people in the factories. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just a shame, and... We may see that Ericsson is not, uh, you know, kept on as a driver for the foreseeable future. I think you and I should start a band called Shards of Carbon. The opening track should be a PR black eye. Yeah. <laughs> what? Why? You don't think so? You would be on the drums and I would lay down the vocals. We'll also have a title track called Shards of Carbon. It'll be brilliant. I understand completely where the FIA came from with the three-spot grid penalty for Marcus Erickson, but I actually think that Felipe Nasser was the root cause of the problem. Erickson was faster. The team very clearly told Nasser to make way for Erickson, get out of his way, and Nasser very bluntly refused to do so. That frustrated Erickson and probably the team, and then Erickson went on to make an extremely silly mistake. But why didn't Nasser just listen to the team in the first place? Yeah, I don't have much sympathy for drivers that disobey team orders. Of course, a lot of people talk about this and, oh, yeah, you got to stand up. You can't let the team get you down. And oh, especially some of these drivers, oh, Felipe Massa is never going to let a teammate by just because he's that guy and whatever, which I feel like part of the deal of being a driver is that, you know, unless you are your own team boss and you built the car and you did all the engineering and you're just, you know, behind the whole thing and it's your decision to make, if you work for a team, then you are employed by that team of people and you should do you know follow the, their instructions and orders and that they may have more information they almost by definition do have more information about the situation around you than you do sitting in the car so it seems silly to me to try to make that a, uh, a you know a big claim of like oh yeah i'm that guy that doesn't follow team instructions because i'm so great but if i'm looking to hire someone and i and i know that that's the case then that's going to be a factor and it's like yeah okay maybe this driver's fast and all but there's plenty of fast drivers out there and if there's a driver that has a reputation for disobeying his bosses and just wanting to prove a point to his own gain or whatever, then I'm not necessarily going to look fondly on that. So there have been times where it's come out to the driver's advantage of, oh man, if I'd let that guy by, then this other thing that happened wouldn't have happened. And it's a good thing that I disobeyed that order. But in general, I feel like it's such a risky move to make for short-term potential reasons, like just what's happening in that race, but also kind of long-term career reasons. So I'm not impressed by Nasser's move to say, oh, God, never mind. I don't want to listen to the team. I'm just going to do my thing. And uh, if this guy wants to pass me, let him pass me, especially at a place like Monaco, where it's so hard to have a, a, a normal passing move and, you know, make that clean. Uh, so it's just higher chances of something going pear-shaped. And in this case, it did. So it's a weird thing because, of course, he was within the rules uh, because Erickson's move was so opportunistic and the stewards found that it was his fault. So he's got three grid spot penalties. But does that make... Uh, Felipe Nasser feel better about the situation? I don't know. Probably not. Jensen Button finished ninth in the race. Fernando Alonso finished fifth in the race. That is double points finish for McLaren. They're getting better. And they are becoming more of a force to be reckoned with, more likely to be in Q3, more likely to be stealing points. And Ron Dennis is still <laughs> making claims that are pretty ridiculous the team's getting better it's becoming more solidly mid-pack and he's claiming his team's going to be the next world champion after mercedes yeah that continues to be a little bit silly but i guess part of his job as does he ceo i guess he's not ceo but just you know director of the team 
part of that is a positive PR message and all that. And I guess if it's one thing for the, the coach of a team to come out and go, yeah, win, 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 we're going to win everything. I'd be like, yeah, we're going to do okay. And we might win and we might lose and whatever. So at some level, it's like understandable hyperbole. It's fine. I don't have a problem with having that kind of ambition. And I guess for those that are strictly, you know, Honda and McLaren fans, they may get excited about that. And really that may rally the, the support and think, yeah, that's great. I mean, I can't wait for them to be champions. Will that happen? Who knows? Maybe they have some good knowledge about some rule changes that are going to happen. And they think they may have another clever loophole sort of situation, or just for whatever reason, just want to stay positive and think positively and work towards that goal and uh, try to achieve it. So I don't begrudge Ron Dennis making claims like that, especially when the team is at least moving forward. Um, If things were really languishing along in the back uh, or getting worse, which of course has happened in the past, then that's a different thing. But now they're at least on a positive track. Expect to see more of a, more of a challenge for a championship from Red Bull probably from Ferrari. I mean, they, they seem to be, you know, Ferrari's in a kind of a weird spot right now, and this was not a great weekend for them. And they've had some, some of their own issues, but we'll see uh, if, uh, you know, if, if Ricardo jumps ship and goes to Ferrari, that could be a pretty strong combination. And, and who knows, but what is, what is the McLaren Honda team going to look like in maybe not next year, but in two years, you know, will Alonso still be driving for him? Will Button still be there? Will it be different people? Will Honda be supplying more teams and there'll be a, a junior thing? I mean, it's a little it's a big claim, of course, to say we're going to be the next champions, but the next two, three years, a lot could change. I guess I don't mind them being positive about it, but they were not as far ahead at Monaco as some people were making it out to be. There's some people talking, oh yeah, they're definitely going to be top five and they're going to be right there. And as you mentioned, two finishes in the points is a very solid way to go. As we mentioned before, though, a lot of drivers were out of this race. So part of that, they were, you know, benefited from that a little bit, but yeah, another, you know, more points on the board is always good. And Hopefully they can continue to move forward and not be an embarrassment to the talents of the drivers they employ. Yeah, I still have full faith in the eventual competitiveness of the Honda engine. I think Honda will work tirelessly and relentlessly to get there. I don't think they'll ever accept anything less than a top competitive engine. I don't think there's any reason to think that will definitely happen before it will happen for another team other than Mercedes. The hubris Ron Dennis seems to possess is impressive, but it makes him harder to believe. Just as you say, the hyperbole that he states, yeah, sometimes in a way it's almost necessary, but gosh, it makes you almost a caricature of yourself as opposed to the real person. We have a lot of McLaren fans that listen to the show. I am a McLaren fan, and you are a McLaren fan yourself. I am also a big Button fan. We both have a lot of respect for Alonzo. We all want good things to come from McLaren. I I just don't need to hear such claims like that. I don't need to hear, we're better than everybody, you just haven't seen it yet. Time will tell. It's one of those things, right? I mean, if the next few years the team languishes, doesn't really get any results, and then the drivers end up going somewhere else or just retiring, and then Honda goes away, then yeah, it'll look pretty dumb. But in another couple years, McLaren Honda is right up there, and if not winning a championship, if they're close and in the hunt and getting wins and stuff like that, then it doesn't look so crazy. So Ron Dennis is making a claim, and we'll see if that turns into claim chowder or not. Force India. Jamie was happy to see it. I think you were happy to see it. That was another double points finish. And those points were third and sixth. That was eight and 15 points. Quite, quite good for the small team. They are the little engine that could. If there ever was a Formula One team, that was a children's book. It's Force India. Yeah, and another podium for Checo Perez. And great job for him to do that. Good job for Jamie to hang out with Checo's dad and uh, be a part of the whole goings on. I can't help but spare a moment of thought for Nico Hulkenberg, who has still never yet been on the podium. This was apparently his 100th Grand Prix start, and he's, you know, he's been fourth a handful of times, but never been on the podium. Sometimes, you know, Checo, you know, he's had a weird reputation. Of course, he had that season at McLaren. Um, he's had some really kind of brilliant flashes on the pan and some and some more questionable moves and stuff. Uh, Hulkenberg seems to be, you know, this this reliable guy and seems like, you know, if I were to just without really looking into the stats, I'm like, yeah, Hulkenberg's probably had some good finishes and all that. But, you know, just thinking about it, he's never been on the podium. So it is yet another thing for Hulkenberg to uh, to be close and solid. But it's like, I keep waiting for this big break for Hulkenberg. You know, will he have a, you know, a Ferrari connection? Will that kind of come back and go down that road or or whatever? But he's not getting any younger. And of course, there's a lot of other goings on, like we've talked about. Will, you know, will, will Ferrari hire Max Verstappen or will Daniel Ricciardo go there or something? There's a lot of different ways this can go. So I'm very excited because similar to Sauber, I mean, of course, Force India has had money troubles and some changes in leadership. And I think Vijay Malaya is in trouble now in India and all that. So for them to have 
a solid result. Good points. That's the opposite of what we were talking about with Sauber, where a, a double crash is about the worst you can happen. This is, for them, a very, very good result and a positive thing that hopefully they can move forward from. Congratulations to Checo uh, to also just kind of keep hoping for Nico Hulkenberg that he can continue to do well and move forward and get, get a podium, get a win, you know, move on and uh, have some good results as the season continues. Yeah, I more and more feel like Hulkenberg should not move forward, but move laterally and win a bunch more races for Porsche. He was on the podium and it was a lot better than third. And that was about a year ago that that happened. The World Endurance Championship is not slowing down. So I don't know. He might be one of the few cases where jumping ship from Formula One to a different racing series pays real serious dividends. Mark Webber looks like a happy guy. Yeah, that was the other uh, thing they were talking about with Daniel Ricciardo saying, oh, yeah, an Australian driver who drives for Red Bull and then is disappointed because the team keeps favoring this younger other guy that uh, they want to have a lot of success with. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, will Ricardo switch over and start driving for WEC? And then could that be a, a Porsche dream team of Weber, Ricardo, and maybe Nico Hulkenberg all sharing a car and doing, you know, it's like, yeah, that would be pretty exciting. So that's that's maybe a little bit far-fetched, but yeah, it could be uh, a, a good thing. I mean, Hulkenberg obviously has been shown to have lots of skills and have been able to translate those skills into a dream result at Le Mans. You know, I hope that that continues to work well for him. Of course, this year at Le Mans, there's a schedule clash with Formula One. There'll be the uh, European Grand Prix in Baku, Azerbaijan, the same day as Le Mans. So I don't think any F1 drivers get to share duties there. No one's doing the double, as they uh, some, some people would say in <laughs> the American racing parlance. That would be quite the double. Would, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That you can't do that. You're there's, not Steve uh, McQueen. These aren't. There's the a movies. throwback for you. Yeah. Steve McQueen also didn't do a double. <laughs> I should point that out. He just did Lamar. Ah, uh, silly me. Yes. So the other major race. Well, are you are you finished with Monaco? Are you happy that we've talked about the thing? I mean, Hamilton won. We didn't mention that a whole lot, but you know that's good for wow. him. And Rosberg had some brake problems, and so he got fell behind, had to get past, whatever. He still got the points lead, so it's not that crazy. I am not as unhappy as Daniel Ricciardo, but no, I'm not done. I still want to talk about the mangled pit stop and the dejected driver. It was kind of a crazy thing to happen. How is it that a Formula One team, a top championship winning Formula One team, has the tires it turns out it wants to use in the, quote, back of the garage and had to scramble to get them out? And their lead mechanic is yelling at the top of his lungs, where are the tires? And the car gets there before the tires do. Rough estimates put it costing him about eight seconds, eight seconds just sitting. And he ends up coming out one second behind Hamilton after the pit cycle instead of being five, six, seven seconds ahead of him. Yeah, well, Dr. Helmut Marco says it was a human mistake. We will investigate and find out. But it was a human mistake. You got to love the irony in that. When Hamilton was dejected this time last year, it was an error of statistics. <laughs> it was like, look, this is what the algorithm tells us. And we followed it. And the algorithm turned out not to be right. And this year it's like, oops, we're human. I find irony in that. Yeah. And I think it's unfortunate for, I mean, very unfortunate for Daniel Ricardo. We talked last time about the Spanish race where it wasn't that the team said, okay, we're going to screw Daniel Ricciardo and we're going to make Max Verstappen win. It was like, well, we have two strategies. We don't know which one is better. So one guy gets one and one guy gets the other. And it's just kind of the way that it happened to shake out. In this case, of course, it was just a mistake. You know, I, I, I'm not in the whole, okay, Red Bull hates Ricardo and this is their way of forcing him out or whatever. I don't think there's anything like that going on here. But we've seen all the, I mean, all the teams have made mistakes. Of course, it is ultimately humans that run these things. And things happen from a car getting released into the pit lane with a wheel that's loose and then potentially the guy has to stop. Maybe he makes it around. Maybe he gets a penalty. There's all kinds of things that just happen. So of course, on the whole, Red Bull has executed pit stops very, very well and is generally really drilled in these things. And as we talked about, you know, it was the team that called in the driver. This was not Ricardo at the last minute, just sort of, or last second, just turning into the pits and showing up unannounced. This was the team asking for it. Of course, it's a very short lap here. And whoever was in charge of which tires are going to go on the car, which ones do we have ready? Oh, no, we don't want those ones. We want these other ones. And then, oh, he's here already, you know, and then and then they made it happen. It's unfortunate, obviously, for Ricardo. It may have some long-lasting implications, but I think the best thing they can do at this point is regroup and move forward and see 
how they can just get some success in the coming races and build on the, the pace that the car has right now. Things seem to be working with the car, the chassis, the tires, and most of all, Daniel Ricciardo, have his teammate, uh, you know, get himself comfortable in the car, be a good wingman and uh, number two guy, and just kind of let the team go forward and try to capitalize, especially on chances where the Mercedes or Ferraris aren't as strong for whatever reason, and go on and, and, and get some success. Uh, I hope that they can do that and not just languish in this error that happened uh, because it doesn't, it's, it's had big implications, but ultimately it's not like his race ended. I mean, you know, uh, Ricardo still did come second place and got plenty of points and all that. Of course, it's not the win, same as a win, but it still could have been worse and everybody makes mistakes. So I guess learn what you can from it and move on. Do you think this was a force beyond us intervening? Was this a cosmic truth coming to fruition? Did the consciousness of humankind as a whole step in and say, what happened last year is not right. Lewis Hamilton must win the Monaco Grand Prix. Because it is so bizarre and coincidental that last year, Lewis was effectively robbed of the Monaco Grand Prix victory. And this year, it was effectively gifted to him. I can't help but see weird coincidences and irony in that. And it's just, I think, worth a moment to say, wow, what a funny world. Rosberg was nowhere to be found. He was suffering with brake issues and ended up finishing seventh. Max Verstappen was out of the car completely. Raikkonen was nowhere and Vettel was languishing behind. So it was very much Ricardo's race to win if it weren't for this faulty pit stop, which made it all too easy for Hamilton to come in and swoop up the victory. However, there is one moment where Hamilton did kind of just a tiny touch skirt the rules. Ricardo was going for a pass coming out of the tunnel and Hamilton cut the corner a little bit and blocked Ricardo in a less than perfectly ethical way. I don't know. I I wax poetic for a little bit on it. What do you think, Jim? At times like these, I like to think of the immortal words of Carlos Sainz Sr., who said, no. <laughs> cosmic, cosmic forces, karma, uh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was another race, maybe just perhaps... We talk about that for a moment because there is a Formula One connection to that race. The Indianapolis 500 did have a host of current slash hopeful slash former Formula One drivers competing. Juan Pablo Montoya, a Sebastian Bourdais, Takuma Sato, and someone with five Grands Prix under his belt, the American Alexander Rossi. Yes, so I will take this opportunity to read an email we got from Colin Sato from Hawaii. He says, Aloha, gents, because, you know, Hawaii. Uh, what a great weekend of racing. Watching both Monaco and the Indy 500 was a real treat, and having Alexander Rossi as a bridge between the two worlds made me ponder Indy versus Formula One. There was a time when American racers were viewed as equals in Europe, and the Indy 500 was such an important race that European drivers wanted to participate. At some point, attitudes changed, and by the time Michael Andretti tried his hand at Formula One as the reigning kart champion... It was almost as if the European establishment was using him to prove they were superior to American racers. On Sunday, an American Formula One test driver won the most prestigious race in America. And Colin goes on to ask, will this help or hurt Europe's perception of American drivers? Will this reinforce their view that if a test driver in our series can win their most important race, how good can they be? Or will it make them stop and think, how do we let this guy get away? Aloha, Colin. So first, thank you for the email, Colin. And it's a, it's a good point. But yeah, um, Alexander Rossi, with a slightly unique strategy, was able to win the Indianapolis 500. He is, of course, an indie rookie and had never driven a super speedway before. He'd only done one other oval race before and had to learn all about how indie cars work, basically, at the beginning of this year. So it's a huge day for him. But it does raise these questions about the various levels between Formula One and IndyCar and all the, the drivers that, that, you know, the few drivers that do move back and forth and the levels of success. But certainly as it happened, Alexander Rossi, he was just blown away by the whole thing that uh, his unorthodox strategy had worked. It was a fuel saving and all that, that uh, allowed him to stay on a fuel saving strategy and stay out in front of the other guys only ended up with the margin of victory of about four seconds. So it was not in, you know, in the bag by any means. Uh, there were lots of lead changes, but Throughout the last third of the race, it was sort of looking more and more likely that, uh, that hey, wait, Alexander may actually be able to hold on to this and make the strategy work. And it was just kind of crazy. But yeah, so very, very well done to Rossi. He was sort of gobsmacked himself. He, you know, he said he couldn't believe it. And how in the world did I even do that? 
but he is an IndyCar winner and winner of the 100th running of the Indy 500. So what a special way for an American driver to have his IndyCar debut season. First of all, huge congratulations to Alexander Rossi. Let me repeat that claim. It was a fantastic result. Now, two points. Let me first remind you what I just said previously. We had no less than four drivers with Formula One experience, and I might be forgetting one. One of those drivers was a very highly regarded Grand Prix winner, Juan Pablo Montoya. He did not win this race, and he was not a major contender in this race. So the level of talent and the level of skill that goes into the Indy 500 is right there with Formula One. It's a different skill, ultimately, being a two-and-a-half-mile-long oval, but it takes high amounts of that skill. Second of all, Rossi did have luck on his side to get this race win, but there was huge amounts of skill and strategy that he, as a driver, had to pull off. He had to race this car in an extremely unorthodox way to save copious amounts of fuel I read this long article by a real racing expert, Marshall Pruitt, who looked at very detailed lap-by-lap information about the race and how it unfolded and interviews with Brian Herta, the team co-owner and the race strategist, a former IndyCar winner himself. And basically, the fuel number that they pulled off couldn't be done. All the math they did said, yeah, we can't make this number. But they decided, screw it, we'll go for it anyway. Rossi was coasting down the straightaways. He was putting the clutch in to save speed. He crossed the finish line at 130 miles an hour. One corner later was completely out of fuel. It was an incredible achievement, and he just deserves all the credit that everyone can give him. Yeah, and you could say either was that divine intervention or maybe their spreadsheets were just a little bit wrong with uh, Alexander Rossi is very good at managing fuel. One of the things I've seen that that's brought up is, is that kind of a skill that uh, he learned as, you know, for the short time as an F1 driver that he was, is, you know, that's certainly more of a factor in Formula I guess I don't want to say certainly, I don't know exactly how it is in IndyCar, but that's definitely a talent of, a, of an F1 driver is how to save fuel and still maintain pace and where can you back off more safely than others and so on. So for whatever reason, the combination of, of course, luck and the overall skill just to drive the car and keep it clean and keep it out of the walls and all that anyway, as well as, of course, the strategy calls, and then actually just managing, putting his car on track and the actual movements of what he's doing to, like you say, uh, lift and coast where he, where he can and uh, how he's shifting and everything to save the fuel. But huge congratulations. And it's an interesting dilemma now because then is, is this, for Rossi, a stepping stone to say, hey, I've got this thing. Now maybe I can have another crack at F1. Or does he look at IndyCar more seriously now and think, well, hold on, you know, I've got I've got this figured out. And not that every race is all of a sudden going to be a walkaway victory and he's just going to be the fuel save guy from now on and go off and win. But does this shift his focus in career to push him more toward IndyCar than Formula One? Or is this just, okay, this is an interesting thing. Now back to my, you know, real task. So uh, I guess next time Jamie and uh, Alexander Rossi are hanging out, they should, uh, they should talk and uh, Jamie can let us know what, uh, what Alex is thinking. I think his heart is still with Formula One. That's my guess. But I think this will be a huge confidence boost and allow him to be potentially more of a player in IndyCar, which will raise his status in IndyCar, which will raise his status in Formula One. If he's one of the top IndyCar drivers, if he manages another race win or becomes more of a regular in the top five, and he's not with the two dominant teams, Chip Ganassi's target racing team and Penske's team, if he's pulling that off, I think Formula One will take a very close look at this and understand that he's a talent. He paid his dues and he went through the European racing ladder series to get to Formula One and he deserves a ride. Yeah, although going back to what you said a minute ago, it is a different skill than driving a Formula One car. It is, you know, an Indy car and especially the ovals and super speedways. So, you know, I keep thinking back to Sebastian Bourdais, who was at the time, was it four times in a row, a kart champion or whatever. And then was like, man, if we could only get this guy in F1, he's just dominant. He was always really good, especially on road courses and really, really solid. And then came to F1 and just kind of had a, a pretty lackluster career. Was that because of the differences in the cars and in, in, in the Red Bull that he was in at the time wasn't that great? 
or was it just that the skills didn't quite translate or was is everyone else in Formula One just better? It's, it's hard to say because there's no fair shakeup. I mean, if we had one big kart race or something in go-karts where it's like all the Formula One drivers and all the rally car drivers and all the indie drivers, and they all just, you know, somehow figure out who's best and, and set some laps and, and you get a sense for the skill. I guess a lot of my votes might be on the rally car drivers anyway, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, it's, there's no fair comparison because then if all of a sudden you go to be in F1 and you just drive for F1, you get a team that hires you and that team has whatever particular car they have and whatever particular engine they have. And then there's all the other variables of tires and weather and everything else. So, you know, it's so hard to know who is better than whom at in what situations. And in a way, it doesn't matter because what really matters is the results and the results are just a culmination of the team and the strategy and the cars and the tracks and everything that comes together and even the budgets and sponsors and how everything happens. So I hope that it goes well for Alexander Rossi. I mean, this hasn't hurt him as an F, as a potential F1 driver in any way, I don't think. Whether he continues to work his path towards being a you know continued success in IndyCar or just maintains his focus on Formula One and tries to use this as, a, as leverage for that. Uh, either way, it's exciting for us as fans of Rossi. Uh, although there is, of course, part of, you know, part of my mind, and probably you're in the same boat, of thinking, man, it'd be great to have an American driver in Formula One, and Alexander Rossi could be our best shot at such a driver. So um, it'd be a little bit of a shame if he just goes to IndyCar, because there are plenty of American IndyCar drivers, and you know, we'll have to see who else can potentially come up the ladder to be an American driving in Formula One. Yeah, I agree with your last point. There's one thing I want to bring up, though, when you mention Sebastian Bourdais. He went from the preeminent top team, the Newman Haas racing team, to a very literal junior team in Toro Rosso. It was harder for him to showcase his talents there versus what he could do in kart, which was champ car, which is now IndyCar. This was also true of Cristiano D'Amato, who was for Newman Haas Racing again, a kart champion, moved to the Toyota Formula One team, was so-so there, but the team was also so-so, and his career didn't last that long. I think that's not the entire reason for this, but that is one of the reasons that these types of things happened. And oh, by the way, Bourdais' teammate that he was compared against was Sebastian Vettel. So just for a little bit of context, that's worth remembering. Yeah, and that's kind of the point, right? There's so many factors that it's really hard to make a, a direct comparison. But at any rate, congratulations to Alexander Rossi. We're all behind you in whatever career path. Uh, if that's F1, then awesome. Then, uh, But if uh, you know he goes on to become a, a successful IndyCar driver, then uh, hey, that's not a bad way to go either. And uh, we have some more chances to see him at uh, IndyCar races. So either way, super, super good job. But don't spend all of your IndyCar winning money in one place, sir. The Indy 500 purse is not small. Yeah, man, he got to drink the milk. Does he know there's not milk at other races? Is it just the Indy one where you get milk? Because he might just be like, I'm just <laughs> I, here for the milk. Excuse me. Excuse me. Where's the milk? I was promised milk, but there is no milk. I, this is the problem. Predictions, though. Let's go to that. For the Monaco Grand Prix, of course, the actual result was Ricardo on pole and Hamilton for the win, which no one picked. So in this case, that's that's always fun. So nobody had zero points, but there are a, lot, a few combinations of either Rosberg-Hamilton for the win or Ricardo Ricardo that would net one point, and you, sir, were among those with the Ricardo Ricardo. So you and ten other people tied for, uh, or I guess you and nine other people tied for first place with uh, with just one point. I had Hamilton Hamilton, which was good for two points. So I tied with lots of other people that had the same prediction for eleventh place. Of course, anyone with a Rosberg for victory got a few more points, and Damien, of course, had Hamilton Verstappen, which was good for nineteen points in this case. Not so, good for Damien one spot behind that prediction for by Damien is the button button. So uh, as predicted by our boy Will Carver and our other boy Jensen Button. So at the uh, at the dull end of the grid, I guess, I don't know, at the bottom end of the whole table, Jolian Palmer, 38 points, tying a Verstappen Verstappen 38 point prediction there as well. So not a brilliant weekend for Max, not the boss, Verstappen. <laughs> the, very true. Max the tax, I like to call him. Ooh, that hurts. But, okay, Canada time. I am going to change my prediction because I am not a heuristic model. I am not stuck in the same place. And while I am impressed with the improvements Renault has made, I am not nearly as confident in the ability of the Renault power plant to hustle a Formula One car around Canada as I was Monaco. So... I think it is time to jump on the Mercedes train. I think that Lewis Hamilton will be on pole and go on to win that race because 
He's got momentum along with many, many, many other things on his side. Yeah, and that is a solid choice because, of course, Hamilton has traditionally done very well at Canada. I have been predicting Hamilton for many weeks in a row and it, of, with varying levels of success, I might add. I mean, this one with two points was actually pretty good for me uh, as, as things have gone with his various troubles. I was thinking Ferrari, though, maybe coming back around. And I'm going to split things up a little bit and say that Nico Rosberg will get pole position, but that one Sebastian Vettel will go on to win the race in Canada. A little crazy, a little, little different for me, but we'll just see how it goes, won't we? I like it. I just want to go ahead and give a quick shout out to Henry Keys for currently leading overall in predictions with a scant 26 points. You, sir, Jim, are in 12th place with 42 points. Damien is now quite far behind. He is in 18th place with 62 points. Ha ha, suck it, computer. And I am farther than that even, but gaining 40th place all by myself with 78 points. Don't plan on collecting many more points though we'll see we'll see how we shake up towards the end it's going to be fun and speaking of points and things being shaken up lewis hamilton gained 25 points nico rosberg gained six points and lewis hamilton is now within one race win of the championship lead everyone is always so so quick to write off championship status because there's so many points behind. But you have to remember, you and I, Jim, have to remind people over and over, if this were 10 points at a time, it would look way more obtainable. And it is now extremely attainable. In the old point system, Lewis would be, what, eight, nine points behind now? Yeah, there's, I think, two things that we uh, strive to remind the Formula One community. One of which is that you can't say this is the race of the year because the rest of the year hasn't happened yet. So when people all come out early on in the season and say, oh, my goodness, race of the year. Okay, yeah, no, that's not really how it works. It's race of the year so far, okay. but This one uh, is and, definitely a candidate, though. Right. And the other thing is that, yeah, all the points haven't been awarded yet, and there's plenty of different ways that things can go. I mean, you know, there's nothing going into the Monaco weekend that would make us look at Nico Rosberg and say, oh, you know what, he's probably going to have break trouble, and he may not end up that well, and, you know, could end up seventh. That's not an easy thing to predict. So that's that's just kind of how these things go. So, uh, yeah, 24 points is the spread. So that's, as you mentioned, of course, less than one race victory. Mercedes has been having lots of reliability problems. Of course, most of them have been on Lewis's car so far. But, of course, this was a big problem for for Rosberg in Monaco. And who knows how these things are going to shake out. So, yeah, it's not uh, it's so easy for, to, to, for people to extrapolate and think, oh, man, well, just because Hamilton's season has sucked so far, that's just going to continue to suck. And there's no way he can possibly win. When, of course, mathematically, statistically, and probability-wise, that is not true. So it's good to uh, see that points battle tighten up a little bit. And uh, Ricardo is right there, too, not super far off, followed by Kimi Raikkonen, who's down in fourth now, Vettel in fifth. And then it's a pretty big drop-off to Verstappen and on down from there. But there are still plenty of races to go, and we are excited to follow them. Of course, Canada being a great one that's on our time zone. I will actually be going through Montreal uh, the week before the Grand Prix, though, not uh, not during Grand Prix time uh, in this case. And I think I'll still be, I guess I'll just be coming, I may still be in Canada when that, when it actually happens, but not, not uh, in Montreal anymore. So our schedule for live tweeting and podcasting and stuff may be a little bit mixed up, but then it's just one week until the European round in, uh, in Baku, Azerbaijan. So we'll see uh, exactly how our podcast schedule goes and uh, if we do just one combined show for those or whatever. But please do follow up with us on funwithcars.com. Uh, you can comment on the shows right there. You can see links to our Twitter stream. Uh, there's hashtag FWCars. Uh, where people are tweeting, even if we are not, uh, there's a community that goes on there. Uh, and of course, the link to the Facebook page and the predictions app as well. If you're not taking part in predictions, as I've mentioned, there are plenty of races to go and uh, still a lot of fun to uh, see how things go with a season that's been fairly unpredictable so far. So that's all from me. Thank you, as always, for listening. I am Jim Lau. And I am Robin Warner. Thank you, Mr. Colin Sato, for the lovely email. Thank you to The Kilt for the brilliant soundbite. And huge, massive, wonderful thank yous to the best Formula One photographer ever, Mr. Jamie Price, for the experience sharing about Monaco Grand Prix. Thank you to everyone. And yes, you will hear from us soon. We don't know exactly when soon is, but you will hear from us soon. Again, I'm Robin Warner. Talk to you later. Mahalo. Hi, this is Robin Warner with a quick addendum to the podcast. Just a couple of facts that we checked, and I wanted to give the most up-to-date information to you guys. Kimi Raikkonen did pull over to avoid a penalty. His car 
was unsafe and he was not in full control and the FIA wanted him off the road. He explained that he wanted to pull off in the first safe place he could find and that he initially thought the car could be driven back to the pits, but the team told him, no, 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 pull over as soon as you can. So that was to avoid penalty from the FIA, which Kimi Raikkonen did in fact do. In a post-race discussion, the FIA decided that there is no further action required. It was in fact seven laps that we were under caution before the green flag was thrown, seven laps during the Monaco Grand Prix. And Ron Dennis is, in fact, the CEO and chairman of the McLaren Technology Group, which owns and runs the McLaren Formula One team. So in addition to being team principal, he is also the CEO and chairman. And it is my honor and privilege to announce Jim and I's new band, Shards of Carbon, and our first hit single, PR Black Eye. Huh? Can you hear all this? Ha <laughs> ha!